Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hi, and welcome to another episode of The Emma Garland Show, and we're revisiting another favourite before we get into the new, the newfangled, the razzle-dazzle of the new incarnation of The Emma Gunn Show, and this is with one of your absolute favourite, not only episodes, this is one that has been listened to and downloaded time and time again since it was first published back in 2019, I believe. This is also one of your favourite guests. It's Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, who I actually bumped into the other day. It was very pleasant. So, stress. That's what we're going to be discussing in this episode. And it's very likely that you have felt stressed at some point in your life. Perhaps you feel stressed right now. But what used to be a characteristic of short-term pressures, so you'd say that you were stressed if you had a deadline or if you had exams looming or if a big event was coming up. It's not a constant state stress is designed the body is actually designed to deal with short-term bouts of stress but somehow modern living has made stress and this constant feeling of stress something that we feel is rumbling along at all times and we have so much vocabulary so much more vocabulary than we've ever had before to describe our feelings of stress so stress which used to be the great big umbrella term I suppose now you might say tension you might say strain perhaps you'll talk about anxiety or you'll reference your nervousness you might even say that you feel distressed or that you have trauma or there's some upset going on maybe you're fearful maybe you're agitated you're exhausted you're fatigued all of these things and there are so many more words I could say but all of these things are describing a tension a stress on the mind body and soul that is overwhelming. Stress doesn't feel good in the long term, certainly doesn't feel good in the moment either. And it can be draining and it can impact our lives and our relationships in ways that we simply can't compute. So as I mentioned, as we revisit some of the most impactful conversations from the Emma Gunn show, it felt appropriate to reissue one that so many of you not only love, but have said have has impacted you really positively and allowed you to make changes and take action to relieve the stress in your lives and that's what I hope every episode of the Emma Garner Show does whether it's for one person or however many people it's uh, afford you the insight from an expert from a guest to be able to see your situation through a slightly different lens perhaps more objectively and then make helpful changes so it's my conversation with Dr. Rongan Chatterjee 
I know he's a fan favourite with listeners and he is characteristically calm, reassuring and knowledgeable while sharing a ton of practical and crucially those actionable tips for you to immediately implement should you need them to lighten your load. Want to have less stress in your life? It's time for Ronk and Chatterjee to explain how on The Emma Gunn Show. I'm delighted to have Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. It's also nice to have a bit of podcast chat with a fellow podcaster before we get underway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's been fun actually, just catching up on how we do our podcasts and mm. uh, what sort of guests we like to interview. Yes, we both are big fans of Tim Ferriss. We are indeed, <laughs> absolutely. Regular listeners of the Emma Gunn Show will imagine the bonding moment and the look on my face when uh, we discovered that we both listened to Tim. That was amazing. I wish we'd actually got that <laughs> on the podcast rather than before we were, you know, before we're actually recording. Yes, mate. Well, you know, it's a moment in time. We'll, we'll keep some mystery. So we're here um, talking with you today about many things. I have a lot of ground that I would like to cover with you, but I think we have to talk about The Stress Solution, which is your new book. Yeah, it's been out now a couple of weeks. Um, I'm blown away by the feedback so far. You know, you you spend months locked away writing, trying to come up with new ideas, new ways Mm. of putting ideas across. And you never quite know until the book comes out Mm -hmm. what actually your audience are going to think. Um, but it's just been it's been it's been great the last couple of weeks just hearing what people are saying, how mm. it's speaking to them, how it's helping them see where the stress lives in their life, and then for me most importantly, what people can do about it. I've been doing a lot of research on you the last few days, and I think one of the things that I felt I was watching one of your TED talks, and I could really feel not only your passion for the subjects that you focus on, like stress. But, and mental health, but also um, a sense of frustration. And I wondered whether I'm right there by thinking all of this is in plain sight, all of the things that we shouldn't be doing or should be doing, they're right there, but it's very confusing. The messages need to be simplified a little bit, like we should be using our phone lesses, we should be getting better quality sleep. And I just wondered how you go about the process of simplifying your message. Yeah, I think Emma, that's a great question. Um, you're right. I think you you picked up on some frustration that probably is there. I think that frustration is less now than it's ever been. But I certainly think a few years ago, I was incredibly frustrated because, you know, I, I went to Edinburgh Medical School. I trained to be a doctor. Like all doctors, when I left medical school, I thought I'd been given the tools that I needed that were going to help me get people better. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line, I realized that actually, you know what, these tools work pretty well for some of my patients, but for many of them, they're not really that helpful. I felt as though I was just handing pills out a lot of the time. Mm. I was just managing symptoms, managing problems, putting sticking plasters onto things, but not actually sort of getting under the bonnet and trying to figure out what's going on, what's the root cause of this problem. Mm. And, you know, I've had a you know, various experiences that uh, led me to think differently about my training and how I was told to practice medicine. I'm so very proud of my training. Mm. But I think I think the training is brilliant for acute problems. Mm. And, and I think that's a key thing for me. If you go back 30, 40 years, the bulk of what we used to see as doctors were acute problems, problems that actually responded very well to our magic bullet pharmaceutical interventions. Mm-hmm. You know, 30, 40 years ago, you might come and see your doctor with a chest infection or a pneumonia, right? The overgrowth of a bug in your lungs that actually we identify, we give you a prescription to kill that bug and that problem's gone. 
Mm-hmm. You can go on and get on with your life. Whereas the bulk of what we're now seeing uh, in all of medicine, but particularly general practice, are, you know, it's just a barrage of lifestyle-driven Mm-hmm. illness mm-hmm. and i think about 80 percent of what i see as a doctor is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles now look i'm not putting blame on people mm. right i'm really not i'm not saying people are doing this to themselves i think in the modern environment it's very challenging to actually live a healthy fulfilled life i think you know you're you're, you're almost having to fly in the face of what the environment is telling you to do Mm. and that's really the problem i think as you say you know so many of the things that i talk about are in plain sight Mm. but on one hand we've got knowledge and then on the other hand we've got action knowledge doesn't always lead to action right i'm really interested in what's that space between knowledge and action Mm. what is it that actually encourages people to actually make those choices that they already know they should be making and that's really what I've tried to do with the TV shows that I made or, you know, in, in my first book and in this new book, The Stress Solution. I thought, well, okay, one, one component there is can you simplify the messaging so that, you know, not to be patronizing to people, not mm-hmm. at all, but simplify it so actually they understand why it's relevant for them in the context of their lives. Because I think if you can simplify it, that's step number one. I think step number two is you need inspiration. You need to inspire people to make that change. And I think that, you know, a big part of my job as a doctor is to inspire my patients. So when they're Mm -hmm. in with me, I really take it very seriously that when they are walking out the door, I want them to feel inspired that actually, hey, you know what? That doctor really understands me. He's explained to me what I can do to help my condition. Mm -hmm. And actually he's broken it down for me. Yeah, I reckon I can do that. Now, I'm not saying I always manage to achieve that, but certainly that's my goal. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll give you an example, Emma, right? So I remember a few years ago, I was in in one of the practices I used to work at, and there was a chap who came to see me as a fireman, and he had all kinds of issues going on with his health. Um, But I thought that doing some strength training would be very beneficial for him, right? Mm -hmm. Now, strength training is very much undervalued in society, right? We, We... we, when we think about working out, we think about walking or running at the gym, but we sort of associate strength and muscle with, you know, youngsters, teenagers, people in their 20s trying to look buff. But what's really interesting is that once we hit the age of 30, we start to lose muscle mass every year. And our lean muscle mass is the number one predictor of how well we're going to be as we age, right? So we need to be thinking about it a lot more than we currently are. And I said to him, hey, look, I think, you know, some strength training would be good. And he said, um, what, sort of 30, 40 minutes, three times a week? I said, yeah, if you can manage that, that would be amazing. Yeah, that's decent. <laughs> yeah. And so he goes away. He comes back about four weeks later. And I say, hey, how did you get on? You know, have you managed to go? Um, he said, hey, Doc, you know what? I, I don't know, I've been really busy. Um, you know, the gym's not really on the way home from work. It's quite expensive. Mm-hmm. I've not really done anything. And in that moment, I thought... You know, I, I tell you what I didn't think. I didn't think he's not done what I told him to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's unusual or not, but I never thought that. I just thought I've clearly not given him advice that he feels is relevant to him in the context of the rest of his life. And in that moment, I thought, right, you know, sod it. I'm going to teach him a workout right now. So I took my jacket off and I said, okay, fair enough. I thought, I'm going to teach you a five-minute kitchen workout. You don't need to join a gym. You don't need to buy any clothes. You don't need to get changed. You know, you can do it anytime, anywhere. 
And I said, all I want you to do is do that for five minutes twice a week. And he says, is that all, Doc? I'm like, yeah, that's all I want you to do. So he goes away, comes back about six weeks later, said, how are you getting on? He says, I love it. You know, I started off doing five minutes twice a week, but every time now we go into my kitchen, dinner time, I'll do maybe five or 10 minutes of these exercises. I often do it six times a week. And, and that really taught me something, which is you got to make the information relevant to people, busy people with busy lives. There's no good, you know, obviously I've written a book on stress. I could say to you, Emma, that the best way to de-stress is to do two or three hours of yoga a day. Mm -hmm. It probably is. <laughs> yeah. but, but who's got time for that? And so in a way, I mean, I, that's kind of what I try and do with my books is to break it down and actually give people simple tools that they actually think, you know what, I think I could fit that into my day. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm going to give it a go. And I'm certainly trying anyway. Yeah. Because I think, particularly amongst my friends, for example, so a lot of women and a lot of uh, listeners who write in, they feel, yes, I want to be fitter. Yes, I want to be leaner or slimmer or whatever it might be. But then it might come with the caveat, but I'm not an Instagram fitness model or I'm not this type of person. And it doesn't have to be as big a shift of, one day you're you and then the next day you have to become a little bit like a fit, fit, fitspo person on Instagram. It's not that big of a leap, is it? It really isn't. And, and you know, that, there's a wider point there, which is sometimes for all the good that social media can do, and there is good there, mm. there's no question, um, you know, a lot of these fitness poses and um, pictures that we see can be off-putting for mm. many people to say, well, you know what? I don't think I could do that workout. Um, it could also be, I don't look like that when I'm in the gym. I mm. mean, some of the photos you see, you think, you know, and, <laughs> you know, with men and women alike mm. is, you know, sometimes people, they look as though they're at a photo shoot in the gym. Um, I know what I look like after workout, the sweat all over my face, my hair looks appalling, you know, and it's, that's what I look like. And, mm. and, I don't know, really. I kind of, it confuses me because on one level, I think, yes, it's helpful to inspire people. And I think some people respond to that really well. But on another level, some people just get put off mm. and think, well, I'm not going to look like that. So that's not for me. Mm. And so I really, you know, one thing I try and do when I'm on social media is, you know, it's an overused word these days, but I try and be authentic. I try, mm. you know, I try and just post it the way it is. Mm. Um, I'm sure I don't always manage to do that, you know, because I think we're all susceptible to that pressure mm -hmm. in terms of how we post and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think, you know, the, the more real we can be, the more authentic we can be. And certainly in my books, I, I, I share a lot of myself. I share some of my own personal stories. I share patient stories. Mm -hmm. And the reason I do that is to bring this stuff to life for mm -hmm. people. Yes, give them the science, but then bring it to life in a way that people think, hey, that's me, I could do that. Mm. I wonder if I did that. I wonder if that would change my life. So that's really my whole approach. Yeah. One of the, um, we're talking about stress and mental health is such a big topic at the moment. And uh, this week I just published an episode where I talked about my practical tips or top tips for mental health, which made it sound a little bit twee, but it just, you know, it says what it was. Obviously, if somebody sits in front of me in the doctor's surgery and says, I'm having issues with my mental health or I'm depressed, it's not something you can get a blood test for and get a specific result and go, yep, yeah, 100% confirmed. If someone is struggling with mental health and it is quite an intangible thing and it's different for every single person, what's where, where does one begin? What would you say to the individual? How would you cater that approach? 
Yeah, so I guess if someone's listening to this and they're feeling as though, you know, they're struggling with their mental health, whether it's they're feeling sad, lonely, anxious, whatever that is, mm. there's no one right way that works for everyone. This is something as a, as a GP we're seeing every day. Mm. You know, mental health problems are on the rise. We, you know, mind, the, the, the mental health charity Mind say that about one in four of us in the UK in any given year are going to have a mental health problem. Mm-hmm. That's a staggering statistic, really, really staggering. And, you know, there's no one size fits all. Talking about it with someone is one of the most helpful things we can do. You Mm. know, Um, of course, as a doctor, I'd say go and see a doctor and talk about it. But some people don't feel comfortable doing that. Right. Mm. So, you know, if you've got a friend, if you've got a colleague, if you've got someone you know, anyone, a, a family member, a friend of the family, someone who you feel, you know what? I could talk to them. I would just urge people to sit over a cup of tea and just just share the way you're feeling Mm. because often just sharing it, you know, and hearing someone else's perspective can make a big difference. I think when we keep this thing inside and these thoughts go around in our head, they can be like a vicious cycle. They they can become a lot worse than they are because Mm. we've just kept it locked uh, inside us if someone's listening to this and they think you know what? i don't have anyone i really don't have anyone mm. i can talk to i'd say well start writing it down write the way you feel down um there's a whole section in in, in my book the stress solution on uh reframing the day and how can you reframe what has happened to you or your perception of what's happened in the day and there's a few strategies i give one of them is to write it down because mm. when you write things down you're a bit kinder to yourself you know, in your head, you can replay a situation and you can be pretty cruel to yourself. Mm. We treat ourselves in a way that we wouldn't treat a friend. We wouldn't treat someone else. You write it down. It's a lot harder to do that. Mm. You, start to be, you start to become a lot more rational. Another thing that people can do is try and replay that situation as if they were commentating on that situation as an observer. So let's say, for example, someone feels as though uh, someone was really mean to them at work and it's really upset them and they're feeling low about it. Well, they can try and remove themselves from the situation and say, okay, if you were commentating on that situation, you were watching it, what actually happened? You say, well, you know what? Um, well, that person came up to me. No, not to me. That person, you know, I don't know. Sally came up to Julie and wasn't very nice. Um, Julie actually started to look quite sad, but ultimately she realized that Sally actually didn't have much sleep the night before because her daughter was sick. I know it sounds like a little bit, um, you know, a little bit out there, but actually these are the sort of tools that a lot of psychologists use as well mm. to help us reframe a situation. Um, and I find it incredibly useful when people, you know, when we talk about stress and mental health, for people who are struggling, it can be very, very useful. But even for any one of us who, who probably wouldn't consider ourselves to have a mental health problem, it can be a very useful way of reframing situations in in Mm. our day. And ultimately, stress on so many levels is our perception of an event. Mm. So one thing that you might find stressful, I may not, and vice versa. Mm. Um, So I think the key thing there, I think, is to talk about things Mm. if you can. And if you can't, you know, write them down. Um, I might be projecting a little bit onto you here, but when I realized I needed to go and see a therapist and see my doctor about my mental health, it was when it became very, very apparent that I had got to the ripe old age of 37 and had no coping mechanisms. So everything, whether it was 
a perceived slight by a stranger on the London Underground or a, an email from somebody that I didn't quite like the tone of, everything mounted or just came into being this huge, horrible thing that I couldn't cope with. So then when bigger things happened, I was useless. And I wondered about whether you see that as um, specifically coping strategies as being something that maybe our parents' generation were copers, but maybe now we seem less able because we have more stimulus? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. Um, I think having coping strategies is, is so important. I think it's always been important, but I think mm. now in 2019, I don't think it's ever been this Im- as important mm. as it is now, for sure. Uh, you know, think about it on one level. We're not really taught these coping strategies, are we? We, you know, we, we're not taught them at school. We're not taught them when we leave school. We just sort of get on with life and we accumulate these stresses. Mm. And we think, you know, we're just about trying to do whatever we can to keep our head above water. And then sometimes it just gets so much that we actually break down and we just can't cope anymore. Mm. And it's only then that we start looking for, oh, I need some coping strategies. Whereas, you know, as in we wait for things to get so bad before we address that. Mm-hmm. And, and actually that is one of the reasons I, I wrote this book is actually to help teach people some simple coping strategies, even if they don't feel too stressed. Because mm-hmm. the reality is these days, stress is everywhere. Stress affects all of us. You know, I don't think we've ever lived in a more stressful era. Mm. And I think it was different 30, 40 years ago. You know, I really do think it was. Mm. I think life was simpler on so many levels. I mean, you give me one example, you know, the blurring now between, well, the boundaries between our work life and our personal life, you know, they just pretty much aren't there anymore. Mm. You know, with technology and emails you know, we, 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 many of us are checking our emails, our work emails in the evening or on a Saturday mm-hmm. or on a Sunday. 15 years ago, we weren't doing that. And we shouldn't underestimate the impact it is having on us mm-hmm. by doing that. That's one thing, you know, um, you know, there's so much pressure now with social media, I'd say that, you know, many of us now, we feel the pressure to keep our email inbox up to date, which frankly, I can't do. I'm, I'm not particularly good on an email inbox. I don't mm-hmm. find it the most efficient way of communicating. No, um, and I'm, I'm always behind. Um, <laughs> conflicting demands, conflicting priorities, you know, uh, working parents really feeling a pressure to mm-hmm. try and finish, get their kids, take them to after school clubs, elderly parents that we might also have to be looking after. Mm-hmm. You add on top of that that many of us have actually moved away from where we grew up for work and for opportunity. So we're living in places now where we don't have our support networks around us. So there's so much pressure on an individual mm-hmm. to actually, you know, get stuff done and cope with their stresses. On another level, you know, technology has freed us up in so many ways, but in many ways it's added an extra burden. So think about holidays, for example, or buying booking a flight. 15, 20 years ago, you'd be phoning a travel agent, mm-hmm. right? And they would take that stress off you and do that for you. Now, you know, it's maybe not the best example, but these days we all now can do that ourselves. Now it's one more thing to do in an already busy day. Mm. And, you know, I, and I get it, you know, we can buy cheap flights, right? So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's all adding to the burden on mm. us that we are having to do ourselves. And it's coming at a cost. And I think a really useful way of looking at this, and it's something I talk about in the introduction of the book, is that we've all got our own personal stress threshold. Mm-hmm. right? And that will vary from person to person. And it will vary depending on what else is going on in your life. And 
I've got this idea of micro stress doses versus macro stress doses as Very a way Tim. of pardon? <laughs> Very Tim. Very Tim, yeah. As a way of really trying to it is really, isn't it? Yeah. As a way of really trying to help people understand the difference between various stressors. Mm. Now, macro stress doses are these significant big pieces of stress, such as, you know, trauma, abuse, bereavement, divorce, you know, that really do have a significant impact on us. And, you know, they need to be dealt with. Often we need to talk to someone Mm -hmm. and process those emotions. Okay, so that's a macro stress dose. But I'm also, I really focus on what what I call micro stress doses. And these are little things that in isolation aren't much, Mm -hmm. but you add them on top of each other and they accumulate and they bring you closer to your own personal stress threshold. And when you get there, that's when you can't cope. That's when your body feels tight. That's when you feel anxious, nervous. That's when you get over-emotional, angry. That's when someone cuts you up in their car. Instead of being calm about it, you get road rage because you have gone past your own threshold. Mm. And why I think it's so useful is if you take an average person today, right, um, and when they wake up in the morning, you can accumulate a ton of micro stress doses before you've even left the house. Mm. So the example I'd give is, um, let's say you went to bed late because you were binging on Netflix the night before, uh, which is something- Get out of my house. Hey, okay. (laughs) So, so, you know, you went to bed late and actually sleep on sleep and, you know, a lack of good quality sleep, actually, I wasn't going to go here now, but um, it's really important. It's probably one of the biggest stresses on the body Mm. because when you haven't slept well, everything's trickier. You're more emotional. You're more reactive. When you haven't slept well, your decision-making is poor. Your concentration goes down. When you haven't slept well, the emotional part of your brain, the amygdala, Mm -hmm. is significantly more reactive, up to 60% more reactive when you haven't slept well. That's the part of your brain that makes you anxious, that makes you hypervigilant. And anxiety Mm. is like epidemic at the moment, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm just saying that, you know, we've got to be prioritizing sleep as a big, big thing. You sleep well and everything seems better the following day. I think we all know that. But mm. back to micro stress mm-hmm. doses. Mm-hmm. And basically, let's say, so you went to bed late. Your alarm, let's say, goes up at 6.30. So you're lying in bed, you're in a deep sleep and the alarm on your phone goes off. That's micro stress dose number one. It's jolting you out of your deep sleep. That, that is a, a mini, well, a micro dose of stress. Mm. Then you think, actually, I'm knackered. Oh, I've probably got another 10 minutes. Snooze. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I haven't been into your house. Okay? So I know you're looking at me <laughs> as if I have, I've not been into your house. Um, so you put the snooze button on. Yeah. And, you know, six minutes or seven minutes later, the alarm goes off again. That's micro stress dose number two. Then you think, oh, you know, I better get up and actually start this day. So you pick your phone up. You go into your work emails. And oh, there's four emails, I didn't answer them yesterday. I've got to get back to them today. Micro stress dose number three. Then you go into social media and you might read a nasty comment on your last post. Micro stress dose number four. Notification from the gas company saying, oh, your gas bill's due today. Yep, yep. Yeah, micro stress dose number five. And before you know it, in the one hour before you leave the house, you could have accumulated 15 micro stress doses. What does that mean? That means you will be leaving your house much closer to your personal stress threshold than you would have otherwise, which means it takes less stress in the day for you to tip over. Mm-hmm. It's more likely you're going to react when someone sends you an email at work that you don't like mm-hmm. or when someone cuts you up on the roads. And my whole approach is to try and show people where these micro stress doses are and then give them some strategies and say, hey, look, 
why don't we limit that in the morning? Like instead of 15, why don't we see if we can get that down to five before you've left the house in the morning and you're going to be much more resilient for the day ahead? Is something as simple as a to-do list? I actually, and I'm, again, personal experience, I would get up, start walking to the kitchen to make a coffee and then think, must turn the computer on. And then I have to take a deep breath and just, I carry my post-it pad around and go, right, email, computer, bill, and then I just know, well, I'm not going to miss them. And I have to trust myself that I'm going to do them. Um, do you think compartmentalising and just not being so now, I must do it now, this second, which we're all a bit more reactive and a bit more knee-jerk than I think we used to be? 100%. I think we are, we're, we're now spending our lives reacting to things. We're not planning. We're not getting ahead of ourselves. We're just reacting to what mm. needs to be done. And I think on a, on a wider level, that really reflects how we live our lives. So many of us, the first thing we do in the morning is look at our phone. Mm. Now, genuinely, and I, and I do do this sometimes still, I try my best not to, but I think looking at your phone first thing in the morning, I think is one of the worst things you can do for your stress levels or for your mental health. And the reason is this, as soon as you look at it, you go into reactive mode. You're reacting to what other people, what the world wants you to react to, whether it's the news, whether it's social media, whether it's your emails, whether it's text messages. You've lost control over your own thoughts. You're giving it up to somebody else. Mm. And, and a, a really, really big tip for me is, can you have a bit of phone-free time in the morning? Uh, even if you need to have your phone on, because you know, some people, myself included, use a meditation app on our phone, put mm -hmm. it in airplane modes. You know, ultimately, I'd love people to think about a golden hour first thing in the morning where mm. their phone is on airplane mode, if it's on at all. And if people listen to this, I'd really challenge you to try this for four or five days and just notice the difference. Notice how less reactive you feel. Notice how you're feeling at lunchtime on the days where you have looked at your phone first thing and notice how you feel at lunchtime on the days where you haven't looked at things mm. because these stress doses accumulate. So the one, one way to, to deal with it, because look, the reality is some of our days are stressful. So we need to take ownership of some of the time that we've got. So I think that's a really good tip for people. Mm. Uh, another tip I'd say, and, and this is something that has really changed my stress levels and my well-being is having a morning routine and this really fits into what you're saying about making lists mm -hmm. so a morning routine for me it's what in that book i call it zoning in um because i think it's just we need to think about how we're going to zone in every morning i love it i love how you editorialize you've got zoning in and i'm guessing zoning out amazing well yeah well, you know well it's it's just basically it's to try and bring it to life for people yeah. isn't it you know you are you've been writing for years you know i haven't you know i it's only like in the last, well, I was going to say two years, in the last 13 months that I became an author, right? And now I'm a two-time author. And so it's, it's, I'm, it's like, how do, you bring, how do you bring these stories and these ideas to life in a book? That's what I really try to do. So yeah, how do we zone in every morning? Well, and I've used this with myself. I've used it with patients. I've used it with busy people, with busy lives. Many people who've got kids who say, I can't do it. I've managed to talk them into and persuade them that actually they can fit it in. And look, a morning routine can take five minutes. It can mm. take an hour. It depends how long you've got, mm. right? Mine currently has taken around 15 minutes and it seems to be working for me. Mm. Uh, but I think one useful way to design a morning routine is to think about what I call the three M's. Mindfulness, movement, and mindset. Now, it's just a simple way of covering a lot of bases. So my own personal one is I wake up um, in the morning 
I bought my phone on. Now, I actually charge my phone in another room that's not my bedroom because if I bring my phone into my bedroom, I cannot resist looking at it. Um, I can't resist looking at it lasting it nice in bed. So I actually leave it in my kitchen Mm. charging so it's nowhere near the bedroom. Um, So I'll get up, I'll go downstairs, I'll I'll put my phone on and put it in airplane mode and then I'll go on the calm meditation app for 10 minutes and I'll just sit there and I'll do 10 minutes of meditation. Now, some days, all I do is go through my to-do list, right? Mm -hmm. The old me would have beat myself up over that, said, oh, you didn't meditate right today. Oh, you couldn't switch your mind off. Actually, I've learned that you just accept it. That is, you know, I just go, you know, I've got a pretty busy mind today, okay? That's fine. Mm -hmm. It's the act of doing it every day. It's the routine of doing it where you get the benefits. Mm. Um, So I do that for 10 minutes. Then I move to the second M, which is movement. I will do two or three minutes, if I've got a bit longer, maybe five minutes of just movement, some hip stretches, maybe I'll do some yoga poses, some press-ups, anything just to get my body moving. Mm. And then the final thing is mindset. And mindset is about doing something positive to get your, you know, to get your brain and your mind primed for the day ahead and putting it into the right frame of mind. Mm. And this can be anything. This can be reading five minutes of a one of your favorite books that you find, you know, is uplifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I love doing is affirmations, right? I think affirmations are really, really good. There's a whole chapter on affirmations in the book and it's about these kind of short, powerful statements that feed your brain the right information. There is actually really quite a lot of science on it now on affirmations Mm. in terms of what they do. Undergraduate students who performed affirmations before their exams actually perform better than those who don't. Mm. And this is, you know, the one I do, and actually I've got two kids, an eight-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter. I try and get up early and start my morning routine and finish it before they get up. But often my daughter has a sixth sense as to when daddy's up. <laughs> and um, sometimes she, she joins me in the second M, so for movement, but she's often there for mindset. And so we do affirmations together. We literally sit there, we hold hands, and we both say together, I'm happy, I'm calm, I'm stress-free. And we repeat it about 20 times. And, you know, at the end of those two minutes, we're both smiling, we both feel calm, And what's interesting is those benefits actually last all day, Mm. right? It's not just transient in that moment. So I think that's something people can think about. It doesn't have to be that affirmation. We could choose anything we Mm. want. Um, But the other thing you can do there in mindset is do a to-do list if you want. Mm. Instead of doing affirmations or instead of reading, you can say, right, I'm just going to spend two minutes now writing down the three most important things I need to do today, Mm. right? That's it. Because if we don't write it down, if we don't... Um, schedule and plan our to-do lists are never done there is always something else to do and and we we hold it in our heads Mm. when we're holding this information in our minds that's when stress happens when we take it out of our minds and put it onto paper we we literally are actually taking it away from our heads we're putting it down and we know okay that's going to get dealt with Mm. and it means that if all you do in that day is is achieve those three things you have had a good day exactly this is getting a bit Tim Ferriss like now isn't it (laughs) (laughs) no but you can you can tick it off and I um there were two things that came to mind I have an affirmation that I say before I leave my flat because the first time I had a panic attack it was when I was about to leave the house and so I had this kind of association with like touching the door handle and now every time I leave the house even still I just say you're gonna have an awesome day today Emma 
because I have to kind of like talk myself off that ledge because it's still a bit of a trigger moment. And then equally, <clears throat> your to-do list doesn't have to be anything huge. And I would want listeners to really understand that. I remember, again, when I was really struggling, it would sometimes be, do you know what, Em's just going to walk to the bathroom, just brush your teeth, and then we'll take it from there. And then you kind of set another intention, like, do you know what, maybe we'll, we'll have a shower. And yeah. we'll, we'll use the fancy shower foam. You know, <laughs> good thing. But this is make a difference. Mm. Yeah, people think actually, oh, there's not much behind these. Well, you know what? You talk to Olympians, you talk to top sportsmen, they do the same thing. They mm. G themselves up. They program their brain for success by using self-talk such as this. Mm. And, you know, we can, our brains are always responding to the information around us, right? Mm. So we can use that. We can either feed it negative information or we can positively actually make a plan to feed it positive information it does work mm. you know i see it time and time again people can be very skeptical initially but once they've done it for a few days a few weeks you really start to feel the difference mm. um, you mentioned obviously panic attacks there Emma. Uh, i wonder if i could just explain sort of briefly what the stress response is Please because do. i think it really helps <clears throat> when people understand what it's there to do and so our, our body's stress response evolved, you know, a couple of million years ago, right? We lived in a very different environment then. The stress response was there to keep us safe in the face of danger. So two million years ago, we're hunter-gatherers, we're living in tribes and communities, and a predator is attacking. Let's say a lion. Mm -hmm. Right. Your stress response is a series of physiological processes that happen in every organ in your body to help keep you safe. Mm. So what would happen? Well, sugar would pour into your bloodstream so you can run faster. That's a good thing in the short term. Your blood pressure goes up for half an hour because that means more blood and oxygen is going to get to your brain. That's a good thing. Your emotional brain, the amygdala, okay, goes on to high alert. That's a great thing because if you are running away from a lion or a tiger, you want to be hypervigilant mm. to all the threats around you. That's an appropriate response to the environment. Mm. Now, there's many other changes, but if we just stick to those three for a second, if you're no longer having your stress response activated to a wild animal, if you're instead having it activated to your life, to your inbox, to your to-do list, to your conflicting demands, to the fact that you know, you don't get to see your friends enough, you don't get to, you know, you're working too hard, you don't get to pick your kids up on time, etc., etc., etc. If your stress response has been activated day in, day out, then suddenly those things which are helpful in the short term start to become harmful. Mm. So sugar pouring into your bloodstream, great for half an hour while you're running, if that's happening day in, day out, that leads to low energy, that leads to weight gain, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, simply from the stress response being activated. If your blood pressure goes up for half an hour, that's fine. If you do an intense workout in the gym, your blood pressure will go up. That's okay, right? Because you're not doing that for eight hours a day. Mm. But if you're, again, if your life is stressing you out, your blood pressure is going to chronically be elevated, which is associated with all kinds of health problems. Mm. But what about the emotional brain, right? Anxiety is on the rise. Mm. And if you're hypervigilant to everything that's going on around you, that's great if you're being attacked by a lion. That's great if you're being attacked in the street. Someone's trying to, you know, attack you and you're trying to run. Great, because you, you're, you're there, you're primed to see any threat that's around you. If that's happening day in, day out, that's why you said right at the start, an, you know, an instant glance from someone on the tube 
suddenly it's like, oh, you know, what are they thinking about me? Mm-hmm. You know, an innocent email from your boss, suddenly you think, am I going to get sacked later today? Mm. Right? It's, it, that, it's not that there's anything wrong with people. That's the stress response. Mm. It's just reacting to the environment we're putting ourselves in. And I, I, I know when I explain that to patients, they often find it really useful to go, oh, so there's nothing really wrong with me. And so there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you at all. That is there for a reason. We now need to just try and give your brain different information to say, hey, you know what? Everything's all right. Mm. Everything's safe. Does, does that make sense? Mm, totally. <clears throat> totally. We're just, if we're constantly in this, it's the uh, fright or flight, isn't it? If we're constantly yeah. in that state... The, and as you say, you have hormones and various other things pouring into your bloodstream. And once you get too many of them, or the levels just tip over, inevitably it's going to, well, it's ca- catastrophic. It is. And that's why, you know, it's, you know, we're told that 80% of what we as doctors, as GPs see and practice every day mm. is in some way related to stress. Mm. 80%. You know, anxiety, low moods fatigue, all these sort of things. Low libido, right? Low libido and gut problems, right? So how does that fit with the stress response? Well, when you're trying to run away from a tiger, your body, as well as, you know, enhancing all these processes to help you run faster, Mm -hmm. it will switch off things that are not essential to survival, Mm -hmm. right? Libido is a prime one. If you're running away from a tiger, you don't need to be able to chill out and procreate with your partner, okay? <laughs> right? And I tell you, libido, low libido is on the rise. I'm seeing it in men, I'm seeing it in women, I'm seeing it much more than I saw five years ago, and I'm seeing it in younger age groups. And mm. stress is a key, key driver, right? Same with hormonal problems, actually, in the sense that that all se- what we call sex steroid hormones in the body are made from something called LDL cholesterol. That's the precursor. And you can look at it two ways. That LDL cholesterol can go down one of two paths. One path is to make the stress hormone cortisol. The other path is to make hormones such as testosterone and estrogen. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're living a nicely balanced life and you're not feeling stress, I don't know who that is these days, but <laughs> if you're not, actually your body diverts resources appropriately. Enough goes to make cortisol, enough goes to make estrogen and testosterone. Once you get stressed for too long, right? What happens? Your body starts to divert attention to where it's needed. So much more of that LDL cholesterol goes down towards making cortisol, Mm -hmm. which means there's much less available to make things like estrogen and testosterone. Mm -hmm. So when you go and see a doctor, often we might give a hormonal, um, we might give some hormones to help, Mm. right? That's fine. And that may have some short-term value, right? It may have long-term value for some people, but I much prefer to say, okay, look, let's use this in the short term. But I think stress is a big, big driver. And as you start to lower the stress load in someone's life, you know what? The system starts to normalize Mm. all by itself. And so, you know, stress affects hormonal problems. Stress also affects gut problems, right? IBS, Mm. irritable bowel syndrome affects about 20% of the UK population at some point. That's a staggering statistic. Uh, It it really affects women. You see it mostly in Mm. women as opposed to guys. And everyone's talking about diet. Diet can be an important component of it, no doubt. Mm. But I've realized that actually I can't get my IBS patients better, fully better, unless I address their stress levels. Mm. Because stress has a huge impact on the gut. As I said at the start, stress affects every organ in your body. Mm. It's a silent thing that's going on in the background. We don't think about it. We think about our diets. We think about our gym routine. 
but we're not thinking about our stress. And actually, when you get your stress load down, it's much easier for you to make healthier lifestyle choices because often we use our lifestyle choices to compensate for the stress in our lives. Think Mm. sugar, think booze. Yeah. And actually, one of the things you talk about, which I really want to unpick with you, is about making sustainable changes because I know all of the changes that I need to make in my life to be a better version of myself using air quotes. And I think everybody does, whether it's whatever it might be, you know that you need to not have that glass of red wine as soon as you get in the front door or not eat that sugary snack in the middle of the afternoon. But I think it is so hard to make a sustainable change when you are you have all this stress around you that actually sometimes you do go for the quick fix. So <clears throat> what advice do you have for somebody who thinks, actually, I really want to take control of my diet. I've said this a million times. I've broken it a million times. I really want to sustain it this time. Is, is there a different way of looking at things that maybe you found to be successful? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's different for different people. That's the first thing I have to say. And, mm. and you know, in, in nearly 18 years of clinical practice now, I realize that actually one approach that works beautifully well for one patient often doesn't, you know, do anything for another patient. Mm. So just with that little caveat right mm. at the start, but there's a few principles that seem to work really well. So if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, I've tried to change my diets, but I just can't resist. I'll, I'll always go for those cookies or those biscuits or those crisps in the evening. Um, one of my big tips is control the environment you can control. So what do I mean by that? We've got a finite reserve of willpower. So don't use it up in your house. Every time you leave the front door these days, um, you know, you are surrounded by temptation. You want to go and buy a coffee, you go to a cafe, you have to stand there in line and run the gauntlet <laughs> off. Um, Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Croissants, pan au chocolat, muffins, whatever, right? And even if you have managed to resist, by the time you get to the barista, what do they say? Oh, would you like a pan au chocolat with that, <laughs> sir? Right? You're constantly being challenged. You try and if you if you drive and you've got a car and you try and fill it for petrol, mm. what you have to stand by is you're waiting to pay. It's all the chocolate bars, it's all the sweets, right? So you're surrounded by temptation. I say don't use it up in the house. If you are trying to cut out junk food, if you're trying to cut down on sugar. Um, and, and, and sweet treats, don't bring them into your house. Mm. Because the reality is, 
is that you are going to come back home sometimes tired, stressed out. And when that happens, you are going to have it if it's in the house. So that's a rule that we have at home is that we don't keep junk in the house. We don't keep sweet treats in the house. I will enjoy sweet treats when I'm out, mm. right? But I won't have them in the house. And even even two weeks ago, right? It's this time of year, we're recording this in January and I, you know, it's really dark. Um, and I came back and I was stressed out. And I thought in the evening, we put the telly on. I thought, oh, you know what? I really fancy something sweet. Got up, had a look in the kitchen. I was just opening the cupboards and there was nuts there. There was fruit there. And I thought, you know, I just, it's not what I'm feeling like. But there was nothing there. And after about 10 minutes, you know what? The craving goes. Mm. In fact, you realize actually, were you actually hungry or were you a little bit bored? Were you mm. using that as a bit of stress relief? It's what I call in my book that an itchy mouth. Are we really actually hungry or we just got an itchy mouth? Mm. So that's one tip I would give people, um, which I found useful. The other tip I'd give people if they're trying to improve their diets is, you know, if you thought about, changing what you eat and you've not had much success there how about changing focus and thinking about when you eat we know that if you change when you eat you can get a lot of health benefits Mm -hmm. so a simple tip i give pretty much all of my patients is can you eat all of your foods within a 12-hour eating window now what does that mean that would mean for example you have let's say breakfast at 7 a.m and you finished your dinner by 7 Mm p.m or eight to eight, or nine to nine. You can choose whatever you want, basically. But the reality is, is that some really good studies now from the Salk Institute in California, um, where they've shown that if we restrict the hours in which we eat, and 12 hours actually is not that bad. It's very achievable for pretty much all of us. Mm. It can improve your immune system function. It can help your blood sugar control. It might improve your endurance, but it helps you to lose weight as well. Mm just from changing when you eat. And the whole idea is is that actually our bodies have got these natural daily, what we call circadian rhythms. And actually eating out of rhythm is a big stressor on the body. Mm. And so a simple thing you can do is just have it in 12 hours. And and I really can tell you that whether it's, uh, I've got some patients with irritable bowel syndrome who found that this really helps them normalize their gut function. And it's, it's just a great habit to get into. It's something that, you know, I'm on the road a lot at the moment, to, uh, you know, on this book tour, talking about the book at lots of live events. And it's very hard sometimes to eat as well as you would like mm. when you're on the road. I think we all recognize that. Mm. Um, but I will always try and stick to that 12-hour eating window. It's just a simple thing that I know I'm doing something for my health. So I guess those are two tips I'd say um, around food, which might help people. Is that the sort of thing you were getting at? Yeah. And I, last year in 26 habits, one of the uh, habits that I tried was intermittent fasting using the 16, eight, and I really get on with it. And the first thing I noticed was my sleep improved. It does. Because once you get one thing, if your rhythm, right, other things follow. Mm. Um, I know for me, if I eat late, because I didn't used to, I wasn't aware Right. And this is half the problem these days is that we're so busy. We've lost that connection between the, the choices we make in our lifestyle and how we feel or the stresses that are going on in our life and how our body tenses up. We've just lost that connection because we're so busy. Mm. And just having that awareness that, oh, you know what? When I'm not eating the whole time, actually I sleep better. Mm. It's incredible. And I now know that if I eat late, if I eat at 9 or 9.30, my sleep is affected. Mm. I've actually tracked this with some technology. You can you can do it and you can see that actually when I do that, my quality of sleep 
goes down. I don't get the same levels of deep, what's called REM sleep, mm. the, the REM sleep, which is where you really restore your body. I don't get the same levels. Um, and so rhythm is a really important thing. And, you know, the modern world with technology, with shift work, you know, that is really playing havoc with our rhythm. And so I'm a big fan of trying to get little bits of rhythm back into our life where we can. Dr. Rhonda Patrick talks about that, talks about the uh, the instances, I think, of uh, heart disease and cancer in shift workers, particularly split shift, and it's double. Yeah, it's really scary. Mm. And, and actually, it's, a real, it's really sad because, generally speaking, the people who are working shifts are... You the know, backbone. The backbone of our modern mm. society. They're the people who are taking care of us, whether it's security hospital, whether it's the lorry drivers in the supermarket who are making sure that we mm. can get food when we go in in the morning to our yeah, supermarkets, yeah. you know. And so I really think we have to think about that as a society, what we do. And I think time-restricted eating, which is what this is called, mm-hmm. um, is something that shift workers can really use well to just help them and help mitigate the effects. Mm. Just want to say you did the 16-8. So that um, is when you eat within eight hours and you have mm-hmm. 16 hours a day when you're not eating. And a lot of people get het up and, and they'll often, you know, after this, I'll probably send us messages on Instagram or Twitter saying, so what, should it be 12 hours or eight hours? Here's the reality. Different people respond to different things. I like to take a very holistic approach to health. I think for the vast majority of us, 12 hours gives us the majority of the health benefits. Okay. That's not to say that actually doing 10 hours or eight hours isn't going to work better for some people. Mm. But as a general rule, if you're doing 12 hours a day, I would say, you know what, give yourself a tick in that box and move on to something else. The tendency for all of us is, oh, if 12 hours is good, well, how good is 14 hours? How good is like 16 hours? And I'm saying, well, let's make change that's achievable. See, this is interesting, right? And I know you're interviewing me, but I've got a question for you, right? (laughs) You did the 16-8 for a bit Mm -hmm. and you felt good. Mm -hmm. Are you still doing it? Yes, but not consistently. Why not? Because... It falls out of the front of my mind is the only way, it's the best way I can describe it. In the same way as meditation does. I know it's really good for me, but if it's not in the front of my mind when I wake up, I will get beyond the train coming here thinking, oh, I didn't do my meditation this morning. Yeah, so, so that's interesting for me uh, as a doctor who, who really talks a lot about lifestyle change and behavior change is you experience those great benefits on 16 Yes, something. It sounds like you are still doing it a lot mm. of the time. Mm. Um, five days a week, is that fair to say you're doing it? Or would it be less? <clears throat> it will be that I do it consistently. And then there'll be a day when, for whatever reason, I think, for example, this weekend, felled with a cold, 16 8 went out of the window because I was like, do you know, what? I'm having toast with Marmite at 8 a.m. And that's okay. <laughs> I think we've also got to take the pressure off and go, actually, even if you're doing this stuff some of the time, mm. you're still going to get a benefit. Yeah. But if we go to the meditation one, for example, mm. I'm. Very, very similar with that. I've struggled to make meditation a regular practice for years. And I know for me, the only way that it, that it happens is the first thing in the morning, before I do anything else, I start meditating. Mm. If I wait, if I check my email first, if I, you know, think, oh, you know, I've got loads to do at work today. I'll just get ahead of my emails, do this, blah, blah, blah. I never find time later. Mm. Do I not have 10 minutes later? It's a comp- of course I do. You know, I've got 10 minutes to mindlessly surf on Facebook or spend mm. 20 minutes on Instagram, right? So clearly I've got the time, but for some reason I can't prioritize it enough in my head mm. to do it. And that's why for me, I have to do it first thing in the morning. Mm. And it's almost, it's now been happening long enough where I touch wood, 
where's some words? Touch words. Paper's a derivative. Pa- exactly. <laughs> I think it's becoming a habit and a routine. Um, and, you know, the car map actually tracks mm. when you're on a streak, it actually tells you. And, and I'm like, I'm, I'm think, conflicted about those streaks. I'm conflicted because I, I, I before, before Christmas, I got to a 48 day streak and I was, I was feeling good. Yeah. I was like thinking <laughs> I'm on it. I thought I missed one day. And I was like, I was gutted. I was like, oh, I've got to go back to zero. You know, I was so enjoying that I was on a streak. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, different things work for different people. But in terms of meditation, I'd say if you, for me and for many of my patients, first thing in the morning mm. is important. Another tip I'd give there is, and I've done this with a lot of my patients before, I say, look, what can you commit to every day? Do you think realistically? And one patient said, I don't know, I, I really don't have 10 minutes or five minutes. I said, okay, how about two minutes? I said, you, you, I presume you brush your teeth for two minutes in the morning, two minutes in the evening. They said, yeah. I said, do you ever forget? I said, no. I said, well, why is that? I said, because you've prioritized it since you were a kid. Mm. And now that's built in. So that is just a habit that you've got. So mm. it's non-negotiable. I said, we need to think about how we can make meditation that for you mm. as well. And so I remember this patient really well. She's a uh, 48-year-old lady and she was struggling with menopausal symptoms, actually. Um, and we've done a few things with the lifestyle, but she was so super stressed. And I had a real feeling that stress was a key driver of her menopausal symptoms. Mm. And I thought meditation would really help her. And we made a deal that she did two minutes a day. And I said, okay, fine. Two minutes a day, but you've got to commit. You've got to do that every day. And what's great when you make it that easy is that it happens. Mm. So she started to do two minutes a day at the same time. And before you know it, those two minutes become five. Mm-hmm. Those five minutes become 10. And that's how you build a routine. Whereas when we set the bar too high, and for some people, 10 minutes is too high. Actually, you do 10 minutes for one day or two days and you miss the third day. You think, oh, you know, I can't do that. That's not mm-hmm. for me. And so I say, it doesn't matter how small, it's about building a habit. I would much rather someone did for two months, two, day, two minutes a day, mm-hmm than actually 10 minutes every now and again. Mm. You'll get much more benefit. So please, anyone listening to this, do give it a go because it really does work. Because <clears throat> I'm sure that you see many people and you will say something like that to them and you see it in their eyes. They want it. But yeah. then it's the application. And it's like um, that enthusiasm evaporates as Absolutely. they go about their normal life. And that's that's what I sort of try to do with 26 Habits was kind of my default setting is that I won't prioritize meditation. How do I make prioritizing meditation a default setting? And I'm still not there yet. And sometimes I think I could be that person who has big, luminous post-its all around my flat going, meditate, put your phone here. You know, I, But who wants to live in an apartment like that? <laughs> <laughs> so how do I become... Oh, the other option I have, other than the big, you know, fluorescent post-it notes everywhere with all the instructions, is to completely change the person I am, live in yoga gear and go and live on the waterfront in California. Because that, in my brain, is what I think the perfect person lives like. Yeah, I, I, yeah I've thought about doing that several times, actually, <laughs> but I don't think it's realistic for me. Um, give it a go. Give it a go. What moves to California? Well, I, I wear yoga clothes all the time. Well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> whatever feels right. Maybe maybe it's more surf gear for you. I don't know. But I feel I feel as though um, it's not just about. You're completely right. Two minutes a day is great, but it feels like these small changes feel like massive leaps and feel like you have to become a different person. Well, well, <clears throat> in some ways you do actually. Mm. In some ways, 
and this is something that's really come to me over the last few months, is in some ways making um, significant lifestyle change, behavior change, is in some ways identity change. You know, and that's a little bit scary because mm. we we I never really thought about this till a few months ago, but I, I think about this a lot now. I think, well, actually, it's creating a new habit almost like almost becoming someone else in the sense that, okay, I'm the sort of person who prioritizes myself every day. I am worth spending two minutes, five minutes on myself every single day. I, I'm, I'm still exploring that idea, mm. but I think there's something in that as to maybe it is a bit of identity change on some level. Maybe if we keep the same identity that we're used to, we'll keep the same habits. Mm. And as we start shifting our mindset, we can start to um, shift our behaviors. It's something I, I, I wish I could tell you a bit more concisely at the moment, but I'm, I'm really exploring that in my head these days. Yeah, yeah I, know, I, I know exactly where it's going. It's the sort of crystallizing it but because that's exactly how I feel I've had to completely change how I talk to myself how I communicate with other people in order to live the life that I always thought I should be living and that's why something like you know going back to what we said before about affirmations right that's the start of that process because if all you did is for one minute a day you said some affirmations to yourself that is the start of the process of changing yourself, mm. of improving yourself, you know, of, of changing the identity to a much more hopefully optimistic, resilient uh, identity that is mm. really going to help support those changes. I, I guess the other tip that's coming to my my head is so you, you've tried to meditate, you can't get it in as a regular habit, no matter how hard you try. Mm. Okay, so what sort of things do you do in the morning? Do you brew coffee, for example, or do you do you, what, what do you do? Tell me. I get up and I immediately go and I make myself a coffee. So how do you do that? Um, it will either be a cafetiere or an espresso machine. Okay, so when you're in the cafetiere, mm-hmm. w- what is it? Do you weigh grounds? Are you a bit obsessive like I used to be when I when I used to drink loads of coffee? <laughs> or do you, how does it work? You... Just, yeah, coffee grounds, a couple of spoonfuls, boom, boom, boil the kettle, let it brew for a bit. How long do you let it brew for? Uh, probably the amount of time I should be meditating, right? <laughs> well, this is what I'm getting at. So I'm thinking about, okay, so if you talk to a lot of the behavioral um, change scientists, and there is a lot of science on behavior change, they will talk about sticking on a habit, a new habit that you want to an existing habit, mm-hmm. right? So you're almost like creating this sort of super habit by sticking it on to something you're already doing. It's like a Power Ranger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is, exactly. So... <laughs> So basically, right, you love your morning coffee, mm-hmm. right? So that is something that I'm guessing you don't wake up one day and go, oh, you know what, I'm not feeling it today. I'm not going to bother spending four or five minutes making my coffee. Or does that ever happen? Or I'm suspecting it, not. It does actually does happen it? sometimes, yeah. Well, that's interesting. You're clearly not as much of a coffee addict as I used to I be. I don't get a migraine if I don't have to. Do you? Yeah, I used to do that. That's when I knew I had to do something about it. I metabolize it really well. I had a... I had a oh, did you do the DNA genetic DNA? stuff? Yeah, yeah. Oh, brilliant. But, I mean, the point I'm trying to make is it sounds like most mornings, if not every morning, you'll either have a coffee or a cup of some hot drink. Mm-hmm. So what I would say there is if meditating's not working, let's try something else. What about deep breathing, right? What about if every time you go to make your morning drink, whether it's the espresso machine, whether it's the cafetiere, what if you said, okay, every time I do that, whilst it's brewing or whilst the kettle is boiling, for one minute, I'm going to do some deep breathing, Mm. right? And the breath I like a lot is something I came up with in practice a few years ago. It's called the three, four, five breath. And it's basically when you breathe in for three, 
you hold for four and you breathe out for five. Now, if I, we could try it if you want. Even you saying that's really relaxing. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> but, but, but it really works. I use it with a lot of my patients who feel stressed, who feel mm. anxious, who feel nervous. I've even got um, university students and, and like uh, teenage kids who are struggling with stress at school who I'm teaching this to. And basically what it does is anytime your out breath is longer than your in breath, you basically help to switch off the stress part of your nervous system and you help to activate the relaxation parts of your nervous system. And so if you do that three, four, five breath, five times, it takes a minute, mm. right? You will be in a different state at the end of that minute than at the start of that minute. That is in so many ways, a form of meditation, a form of mindfulness. Mm. And so I don't know if I can get you to commit to this, Emma, on air which is not uh, you know on Damn our recording you. but uh, but you know i would this is the sort of thing i do on my page say look why you know is there any reason what okay let's do it another way a kinder way is there any reason you think you can't commit to doing that for the next week every time you brew your coffee you can't do one minute of breathing there's absolutely nothing other than just um laziness but do you think but, but have i made it simple enough um where because the whole point of this was you saying you're struggling to build meditation in. Yes. So I was thinking, okay, let's think outside the box here. What could we do? But partly because my perception of meditation is not uh, aligned with my identity. Because my perception of a meditator is somebody a lot more, a lot more chilled out than me. <laughs> do you see what I mean? Yeah, so no, I get it. It's what you're talking about, about identity change, is I have to start seeing myself as a meditator. Exactly. But it's small steps, it's baby steps. Mm. And so maybe that's too much of a leap at the moment. But I would bet that if for a week or two, you did one minute of deep breathing every morning, right? And you wouldn't have to, here's the thing, you don't have to create time here. What do you, I'm really interested here. When the kettle's on, mm-hmm. right? So obviously you've got your cafetiere out, you put two spoons in and the kettle's on, right? In the you know, might, how long does a kettle take? Obviously, it depends how much water you're putting in it. But let's say it takes a minute to boil. Mm-hmm. What are you doing in that minute? Probably like washing up my keep cup, drying it, because it's probably been in the sink overnight. Yeah, fine. <laughs> okay. So, okay, you're, you're doing something else. A lot of people will mm-hmm. be using that time to sort of scroll mm-hmm. on social media or on their emails. But, you know, in many ways, you're not having to create that much extra time, if any. That is a process that's happening mm. anyway. Mm. Uh, or it could even be, here's what I use. I used to do this one. I, I've actually got, recently have quit coffee and I'm going through an experiment as to what I'm like off coffee. Um, <laughs> and apart from the withdrawal symptoms, which were horrific, um, I'm actually feeling really good and a lot calmer since I've, since I've quit, actually. Did you try mushroom coffee? Not yet, but I want to. That's something on my radar. I was you know, thinking about this just yesterday, actually. But the, but the point is, I used to, I used to be quite obsessed if I'd weigh out the grounds. And then when I pour the water into the cafetiere, and I'd time it for four minutes. That's how long mm-hmm. it would be brewing for. And in those four minutes, I had a step, a kitchen step, uh, one of these kind of um, exercise steps in mm-hmm. the kitchen. And I would do literally three or four minutes of just body weight exercises around that step. So I didn't have to think about finding time for a workout on the day I would want my morning coffee and I would use those four minutes effectively. And that's how I, I built that habit into my day. And what I'm really hoping for is that, you know, meditation can be scary for some people. It doesn't 
necessarily fit with every person, particularly depending on what their perception is. Deep breathing is a fantastic mm. way to lower yourself away from your stress thresholds. Mm. You know, when you're feeling stressed and anxious, your breathing changes. It's a, it's a reflection. It's a mirror reflection of your mental states, mm. right? Your breathing goes faster. You start to breathe more with your chest than you do with your diaphragm. And that's why I've written a whole chapter on breathing in my book to help people understand how important it is to learn how to breathe as efficiently as possible. But a simple thing that we can all do is just focus on our breathing. Even for one minute a day, it suddenly brings your awareness that actually, you know what? My breath is something I can use to change the way that I feel. And so look, I hope you find that you slam it. It's just something I think no, I do. It's you might be able to do that with, with, you know, and stick it into your existing habits. I, I do feel motivated by that. And I know that when I do meditate and when I did 26 habits and I did it every day for two weeks, whereas I used to maybe wake up at DEFCON 2 and then the meditation would bring me down to like DEFCON 4, I would wake up much less ready to fight, you know, much less ready to react. And then in the day, if then something happened that previously would have made me flare up or get upset or whatever it might be, I could deal with it. That's because interesting. My my stress levels were in a place where I wasn't, as you say, at my threshold. So I was dealing with I had to go back to my earlier point, maybe my coping mechanisms were coming into play because my thought was more linear and less chaotic. And yeah, absolutely. The other chaotic. thing I find um changes that's interesting when you're doing that twenty six habits, you would wake up just that bit calmer. Mm. Um, which again means you're much more resilient. And I know I've noticed that if I'm not disciplined with my one hour before bed, if I break my own rules and go on email and social media and I'm scrolling, I find that when I wake up, my mind's quite busy mm. and I'm sort of, I'm almost in that reactive mode, even if I haven't looked at my phone first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I find when I literally switch my phone off for an hour before bed and do something like reading, like a reading a book, mm. I find I wake up calmer and, you know, in fact, the way to have a stress-free day actually starts the night before, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Because if you're wound up and you go to bed late, it affects the quality of your sleep and you wake up much more stressed the following day. Mm -hmm. So, so I, think, I think these are really useful things for people to think about because the reality is, right, so many of us are feeling stressed these days. But if we just focus on some of the basics, mm. right, like having one hour before te without tech before you go to bed, mm -hmm. right, really prioritizing that sleep, having 10 minutes of calm in the morning where you're not on your phone, mm. one minute of deep breathing when you wake up. These are not, these are things that all of us can fit in, actually. Mm. You, you're just going to find that actually you're much further away from your stress threshold. Mm. So you're less likely to feel stressed when life's inevitable stresses come your way, as they will. Mm. You've got much more reserve left in the tank. And so I'm really passionate that it's not as hard as we think. The other, the other big thing I'd say to people is if you work at a laptop or a, an office and you're looking at screens all morning, you know, when it's your lunch break, if you are taking it, I hope you are, many of us actually think we're being productive by staying working and eating at our desk, which is the most counterproductive thing you can do for a whole number of reasons. Mm. And one of the reasons I have to tell you, which is it's just brilliant, and I found it when I was researching my book, is that um, when you switch off from a task... So when you're not actively focused on something, we would think that our brain goes to sleep and starts to you know, switch off. But it's not true. There's a part of your brain called the default mode network, the DMN, right? And it goes into overdrive. And what's that to do with? Well, your DMN is involved with what we call your autobiographical memory. But one thing it does is it helps us to solve problems 
and it helps us to be more creative. This is the reason why so many of us come up with our best ideas when we're out for a walk mm-hmm. or we're in the shower. Like often when I'm in the shower, I'm like, oh, I've just got it. I've, I've got this idea and I've got that idea. And actually, you're trying to remember them for when you come out, mm. right? And do you resonate with that? Totally. And my thing, because I'm self-employed, I work a lot from home. If I'm working on stuff, if I'm at my computer and I feel like I'm beginning to bang my head against a brick wall, into the other room, headphones in, Free Bird by Leonard Skinner. Oh, talking my language. <laughs> Have a bit of a dance. <laughs> All the oxygen starts moving around my body and I go back and everything falls into place. Yeah, but you know what? That's great. We intuitively know that. That's exactly the kind of thing I do, the kind of crazy stuff I do. And it works. And we now know the science Mm. of why that is. It's because your default mode network goes into overdrive when you switch off. Mm. So people who think that they can plow through their lunch break and keep working, actually, yes, you can. A, there's a cost. A, you're getting closer to your stress threshold, number one. Number two is that you are less productive in the afternoon than had you taken a 10 or 15 minute break. And that is something that we almost need to reprogram into our heads in this society where we think we've got to keep going to get ahead, to be more productive, to compete with everyone else. Mm. Actually, switching off is the most productive thing you can do. And I think that's revolutionary for many people. And actually, now you're saying it, it makes perfect sense. And I wish I had put it in 26 Habits to every day for two weeks to take a lunch break. Yeah. Of a certain amount of time. One of the tips I give patients and I talk about in my book is take a a tech-free lunch break, Mm. you know. And uh, what I meant to say before is if you're on screens all morning, what you don't want to do, which is what many of us do, which is like, oh, I've got a lunch break now, right let's catch up on Instagram and Facebook and, oh, I've got these few emails on my phone. I'm just going to catch up on them. Mm. But you're not allowing your brain to switch off. You're you're moving closer and closer to your threshold. Mm. And what that means is you may not pop then, but what will happen is that will keep going through the afternoon. And then let's say you get home or you work from home, right? Let's say if you've got kids, your kids come back from school or if you've got a partner, your partner comes home from work, right? Well, you're going to have a much deeper, meaningful interaction with them if you've switched off at lunchtime because you are much further away from your Mm. threshold. If you keep hammering it all day, you're going to bring that stress energy back into those relationships, which probably, I'm hoping, mean the most to you. Mm. Yet we affect those so much. We let the stresses of our life really impacts our relationships. A whole quarter of my book is on relationships because I think it's that important. Mm. And I think it's one of the biggest sources of stress, but also a lack of nourishing relationships is is a huge source of stress. And, you know, I don't know if we've got time today, but we can certainly talk about why that is. But um, I I think it's little things to think about. Yes, so relationships is a quarter of the content of the book. And because it's such an important pillar, it really is. You know, these there's these four core areas in the book, and what I call them are stress superhighways. They're the they're, they're where stress lives in our 21st century lives, and they work both ways. So let's take relationships. A lack of close, nourishing relationships in our life is a big stress on the body. But also, conversely, if we're really, really stressed in our life, it's very hard to have those deep nourishing relationships it works both ways and you know i talk a lot about loneliness because loneliness is something that is on the rise in the uk some commentators call it an epidemic mm-hmm. and when we think about loneliness we're thinking about the elderly often but that's a mistake because yes there's no question that there are you know many people who are elderly who are living by themselves and are feeling isolated but 
young men between the age of 30 and 45 are some of the loneliest in society. Now, being lonely is as harmful for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Right? It's incredible. Right? This research came out a few years ago showing us that. Why could that be? Well, if we link back again on an evolutionary level, two million years ago, if you weren't part of your community and your tribe, if you were on the outside, you were vulnerable to attack. Mm. So what happens? Your stress response system goes into overdrive. Your immune system gets ramped up. You become inflamed to prepare you for when you get attacked, mm. right? So now we understand that. We, we, there's um, a field of science called social genomics, which is being studied by Professor George Slavich at UCLA in California. And he's shown that actually, if you are rejected in a social situation, within 45 minutes, your genetic expression has changed and you become more inflamed just from being rejected, right? So this is really incredible. So I don't say this to scare people. I say this to actually raise awareness that actually when we think about stress, yeah, we can talk about breathing, we can talk about meditation, we can talk, talk, talk about tech-free lunch breaks. That's all fine. But we also got to talk about the stuff that we don't want to talk about, like uh, relationships and how many of us aren't even prioritizing the relationships that we've got. Now, I'll give you an example, right? Um, friendships. Because of social media, many of us now, we see on Facebook, we see on Instagram, what our buddies are doing. We see what they're wearing. We see pictures of their kids. We even see what they ate for dinner last night, mm -hmm. right? And so we feel less of a need to see them in real life, mm. which is really incredible, really, because um, actually electronic transactional communication is not the same as deep human meaningful connection. It mm. does different things to our body. And one of the tips I give people is set a date to see your friends in person. Mm. Right? I had a patient recently, 37-year-old chap, and he came to see me, and he was self-employed, right? Worked really hard. He would be working most evenings, doing his emails. Weekends, he'd often be working. And he came to see me saying, Dr. Chas, you know, I'm feeling low. I feel a lack of motivation often, um, and I'm worried I might be getting depression. I said, okay, fine. So I, I spoke to him, I talked to him. He wanted to run some tests. We did some blood tests. They were all normal. Um, and as I started to understand his life more, I realized that actually he was very lucky. Actually, he lived in a village where he grew up. A lot of his friends actually still live there. But he hadn't seen them in months. Mm. So he was so busy working. Sure, he saw what they wrote to him on social media, but he didn't get together with them. And I said to him, look, for the next few weeks, what I'd love you to do is once a week, I want you to meet at least one of your friends in person. And when you're with them, put your phone away. He goes, all right, Doc, yeah, I'll give that a go. He goes away, he tries that for a few weeks. He comes back and about, I think maybe just almost six weeks later, he comes in and I said, how are you doing? And he said, I just can't tell you, I feel like a different person. I am I feel happy, my mood's better, my self-esteem is better. I'm even more productive at work now. And I said, what have you been doing? He said, well, look, a couple of times we played five aside, but more often than not, on a Sunday morning, we just go to the local cafe and catch up for an hour over a latte. And, and that was really telling for me it really taught me that this is incredible this guy didn't have necessarily a mental health problem he didn't have depression you know what he had was a deficiency of connection in his life mm. and once you know you might be thinking what's a gp why is a gp having to give us this advice well 
in reality, this is the advice I'm having to give a lot of my patients now because that's how society is changing. So mm. I, I don't want to give a pill if I can, you know, I don't mind giving pills when necessary, but I'd rather, I'd rather get to the root cause and, and, mm. and give a lifestyle prescription rather than a pill prescription where I can. Mm. And I've seen this over and over again. And, you know, I, for example, my really close friends are my uni friends. And unfortunately, we live hundreds of miles away from each other. One lives in Edinburgh, one's in Kent, one's in Bristol. I live near Manchester. So for us... Where did you all go to uni? Edinburgh. Uh. So we made a vow. And I neglected my friendships for a few years. And neglect is the wrong word. I under-prioritized them because I was so busy, mm-hmm. like everyone else. But we said, right, twice a year, we are going to get together for a golf weekend. Um, and it's not about the golf, actually. It's just that we all happen to play. So mm-hmm. golf is the glue that gets us there. Uh, and if I come into that weekend feeling physically and mentally exhausted, I always come back feeling refreshed. Mm. And interesting enough, when I come back, not only do I feel better in myself, I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm better in the job that I do mm. because you know friends serve a different role in our lives than our partner, for example, or our children. And on a wider level, there is a whole chapter on intimacy as well in the book, because I think intimacy is something that we are eroding out of our lives, whether it's with our friends, whether it's with our, you know, our other halves. And I think it's a real problem. And um, I, I kind of feel that we're expecting so much of our other halves these days, because we're living these isolated lives, because we've often moved away from parents, from networks, from friends for work. And then we have kids, let's say. We're trying to bring kids up by ourselves without a support network. Mm. We often don't see our friends. So we expect our partners to be everything. We expect them to be a great parent. We expect them to be great in the house. We expect them to be a confident, our best friend, a sexual partner. All these things we expect off one person. Mm. And I think it's too much. And never in human history have we expected that much of one person. Mm. It's always taken a village, right? We get different things from different people. And so, you know, that's why I've written a whole chapter on nurturing your friendship. Because I think friendship is important. Friendship is not a luxury. It's a necessity Mm. for health. And, you know, as pubs start closing down around the country, as churches start closing down, as, you know, these, these places where people used to congregate and unwind together was were pubs always about the drinking or was it about the camaraderie and the Mm. you know probably a bit of both but i think it's the community more than anything Mm. and you know i've I've got this table in the book on how you how you can become a regular again what are those things that you can do to help get that community back because some people will listen to this emma and they'll go that's all great but you know what i actually don't have any close friends Mm. um and i see that time and time again and so you know, it could be a club that you join where there's a mutual interest. Um, I think one of the reasons Parkrun has proven to be a huge success is not really, it's not about the running, actually. Uh, I interviewed the CEO of, of Parkrun recently on my podcast, and he said, it's interesting, Parkrun is a social intervention masquerading as a running event, mm-hmm. right? It's not about the running. It's a lot of people go and walk. Some people just go and volunteer. So I've got some patients who actually do feel very lonely. They don't have a friend's network. And I've pointed them in the direction of parkrun. Mm. And actually, they don't want to run. They just volunteer each week and they start to feel good about themselves, self-esteem, because there's a supportive tribe who they congregate with every Saturday morning. Mm. And so, you know, when we think about stress, I think we have to think about relationships. 
Um, so that's a little bit of a, almost like a taster of the sort of thing I, I, I discuss. I think one of the biggest issues, and we do not have another hour to talk about it, but I easily could, is community and the, the sort of dissolution of a sense of community what? since I've, since uh, in my lifetime. Well, you're absolutely right. And that's pretty much almost what, what we sort of just been covering about mm. those relationships is we need that community. Um, and I think this, you know, this, this sort of moving away from work, which, you know, many of us do, right? And I get it, I understand mm. it, but I think it's come at a cost. Mm. Um, and I think we have lost something and community is what's going to get us out of this jam, I think, that we're in at the moment in society. But then, you know, Emma, look, you, you, we were talking about podcasts before a little bit. It's not the same thing as a um, necessarily as real life connection, but I've not really thought about it in this way. But, you know, you're developing as I hope I am, this sort of community, this like-minded community mm. through your podcast where, you know, listeners keep listening. they sort of engaging in what you're doing. Mm. Maybe they interact together online. And that can, for some people, can become their community, you know. Uh, so I think it's interesting to think of things like that. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know if you have a, you do have a Facebook group for the books and for you. And there's one for this show and the people in there are freaking awesome. Really? And I love the conversations they're having. Oh, Literally, wow. like, whether it's about, I've got these two job offers on the table, what should I do? Or uh, just the conversations in there are brilliant. You know what, I mean, you give me an idea. I don't have a Facebook group for my podcast, but I do think it. I'm going to do one. And that's me, thanks to you, because <laughs> um, I often wonder, wouldn't it be great for them to have a little community area where they could congregate and chat mm. and so i'm going to set one up for the feel better live more podcast i'm going to do it on facebook and that was all down to you Emma. So thank you yes i will join it as soon as oh I brilliant die. right that's <laughs> that sort of means i have to do it now as well don't say it does <laughs> it does well even just for speaking to you i am so far away from my stress threshold it has been such a pleasure but i have come to the end of my time with you because i have really taken the mick so i just wanted to say thank you so much and obviously listeners the links to the stress solution, uh, Rongan's other book, the podcast, everything that we've talked about during the show, all of the links for those will be in the show notes that you can find on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and wherever it is that you are stream downloading, stream louding, streaming or downloading this episode. And I mean, before we leave, I just want to say, <laughs> chatting to you for the last hour has been such a pleasure. I can't tell you, Aww. you've got such a great manner, and uh, it's been. I've just enjoyed it. It's, I can't believe the time's gone that quickly. So thank you for having me on. Oh, a pleasure. Come back soon. I'd love to. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.